Well, good morning. My name is Charlie McCormick, and what a great honor it is to be with you this morning and share some thoughts for a few minutes. I will always admit when I stand up here that I feel terribly unqualified to be here. But as this church goes through a discernment process for our new preacher, I'm delighted to be able to join you this morning and offer this message. I will tell you that as part of my professional responsibilities, I end up doing actually a a lot of public speaking, but I always hesitate uh, when asked to speak at church. The stakes just seem so much greater here. And probably because of that, I always feel the need to remind you that I'm not a theologian. Longtime Christian, but my focus this morning isn't to unravel or unpack any thorny theological issues. Instead, and much more in line with my skill set, I want to take a group from the Bible that I heard a lot about when I was a kid in Sunday school, but not so much as an adult. I want us to spend a few minutes this morning considering those identified as mighty men in the Bible and try to figure out what they would, uh, why they would make several appearances in Holy Scripture and what, if anything, they might teach us. Before we get started this morning, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to join together this morning to praise and worship you and to reflect on your good news. We thank you for the knowledge that there are many others in our community doing the very same thing this morning, and we ask you to bless their worship too. We pray that if anything that's said this morning distracts from your good news, we completely forget it, and only those elements of this message that amplify that good news be remembered. We thank you for this week of warmth and sunshine and the rain, and we pray for your continuing support of those that remain in jeopardy because of our recent winter storm or their susceptibility to this pandemic. We ask all these things in in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, now the general subject of mighty men shouldn't really be esoteric or strange to anyone, and my guess is that many of you, maybe most of you, recognize this image even if you don't know the details of the characters or their storyline. So these are the Avengers, first of comic book fame, where I spent way too much of my youth reading about them, and more recently of blockbuster movie fame. And they're heroes brought together by fate or destiny to fight against those evildoers who would threaten, or in the case of the movie franchise, threaten the entire universe. The Avengers is a modern story, but it reflects really ancient themes. Time and again, humans have taken great delight in telling the stories of mighty men of valor who rise up in times of need and rescue the family, the community, the country, the world. In each retelling of these stories of mighty men, some plot elements are common, even though the heroes themselves may look quite different. I added this example for my dad. This is, of course, Roy Rogers and Trigger, but I don't think that's Dell Evans. And though none of the Avengers wore a cowboy hat, there are plenty of commonalities among all these mighty men. In fact, there are people who study these stories across uh, time and space, and some of them argue that all mighty men progress through a pattern sequence they have termed the hero's journey. And here's one uh, graphic rendering of the hero's journey, but uh, by no means is it uh, definitive. There are all sorts of nuances to the hero's journey that different researchers focus on. Still, this helps you see some of the markers of the hero's journey, markers like the call to adventure, the refusal of that call, the meeting with the mentor, the time of test, or what would be in the Rocky movies of the training sequence. There's some sort of ordeal resulting in a real or symbolic death and a reward and a return and the opportunity to start the cycle once again. Now, the model of the hero's journey is a little too prescriptive for my taste, But I do acknowledge that a lot of these elements tend to show up over and over in the stories about mighty men and in stories about mighty women. 
Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz has a call to adventure when her house lands on top of the Wicked Witch of the East. And she's very much a reluctant hero, but through a variety of tests with allies she meets along the way, she's able to ultimately survive the ordeal with flying monkeys, make her way back to the Emerald City, and ultimately back to Kansas. But tales of mighty men and women are more than just this hero's journey template. It's, it's a useful way to think about the experience in general, though the lived experience of individuals can be wildly different from this template. Nonetheless, we, de we delight in the hero's uh, journey story and the mighty men and women that pursue it, and we tell it over and over again. And part of the reason why is because these mighty men and women reflect who we want to be and who we might be. We want to be resourceful and brave and daring and capable. We want a happy ending and to wind up back in Kansas where everything is good and pure and makes sense. But because mighty men and women are not just who we want to be but who we might be, their stories aren't always good and true. And part of the reason we're drawn to these stories is because they are reflections of who we might be in our most exaggerated form. We might be a Roy Rogers or a Dorothy, but we could also be something more like the Hulk, a creature that's certainly mighty and that has the capacity to do good, but ends up doing a lot of smashing everywhere he goes, too. Mighty men and women, as exaggerated forms of ourselves, have the potential to both ennoble us and terrify us. So the Bible is full of stories of mighty men of valor. And in fact, when I use that phrase, mighty men or mighty men of valor, I'm taking that directly from the Bible. And references to these figures extend far back in the Old Testament. In Genesis 6, for example, just before we get to the story of Noah and the flood, we read of the Nephilim. Now, we don't know exactly who they were or who the sons of God were that appear to be their fathers, but their characterization as heroes of old and men of renown probably makes them our first biblical mighty men. The use of the term Gaborim to describe them connects them to other mighty men in the Bible who have that same term, Gaborim, applied to them too. And the use of the term heroes here probably leads you to imagine the Nephilim as the same sort of mighty men as the Avengers appear to be. But the context of this passage, situated between God decreeing how long humans can live and God's utter disgust with the wickedness of humans that he must cleanse through a flood, cast a darkness on the Nephilim and has made generations of readers suspect of who they really were and how they really used their powers. For example, there's a legend, though not without a plausible case to be made that it's true, that says that Goliath of the David and Goliath story was one of the last of these Nephilim. Altogether, this suggests that, just like our current superhero figures, mighty men are complex figures and capable of much good and perhaps even of much evil. But there's too much that we don't know about the Nephilim to understand really what their motivations are. And it's several chapters later in Genesis 10 that we encounter what I sort of feel like is the first fleshed-out identification of a mighty man. We read in Genesis 10 that Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this is from a passage that's often referred to as the Table of Nations, which recounts the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all Noah's sons, after the flood. And I'll admit to you that I typically find these lists of, you know, who begat who pretty boring. But every now and then there's a jewel in the list, like this passage about Nimrod. There's lots we don't know about him, but we do know that Cush was the first son of Ham, followed by his brothers Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So Nimrod would have been the great-grandson of Noah. 
There are a few other references to him in the Bible. In 1 Chronicles, we see a reference, and in the book of Micah. But we don't, for instance, know what made him such a great hunter that he developed his own idiomatic reference. It goes something like this. John and I went hunting this weekend, and, and John was like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The author of Genesis assumes we know this expression. Of course, we don't today. And all of this sounds like high praise, but probably because the Bible identifies one of the kingdoms he established as Shinar in both the Hebrew and Christian traditions, Nimrod develops a bad reputation. Shinar was home, according to legend, to the infamous Tower of Babel. And in the legends that followed, it's Nimrod himself who directs the building of the Tower of Babel. We know from the biblical text that God is displeased with this tower because he keeps it from happening. And I think what God is mad about here is that it appears these humans, these tower builders, are committing the most despised act of the ancient world, which is hubris. Now, hubris is literally excessive pride in oneself, and it usually manifests itself uh, by an individual believing and acting like he's a god. And it won't surprise you then to realize that mighty men and and, uh, people of power were always at risk of succumbing to hubris. We therefore may remember Nimrod as an early mighty man in the Bible, but later legends don't equate that status with being beloved by God. On the contrary, he's one of the first, maybe the first, of many mighty men who forgot who he really was. And one of my favorite mighty men in the Bible is Gideon. We read his story in Judges 6. In verse 11, Gideon's Gideon's threshing wheat secretly so the Midianites do not take it from him. And the angel of the Lord sits down in the shade of a tree and says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? We're all of his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us under the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I shall be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none in the flies. Sweet Gideon, hiding out and trying to make flour for bread. He's a total skeptic of himself. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest. I'm the least in my family. In fact, I bet he initially thought the angel of the Lord's greeting, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, was meant to be a slight. That the angel of the Lord was making fun of him in some way. And he's also a total skeptic of God. Gideon asks, where is wonder steeds today? And, and Gideon needed proof of God's will, his power, his intention. I, I, I don't know. He said he needed to have God perform three miracles before he would agree to anything. But Gideon finally agrees to assemble an army to fight the Midianites. He got thousands and thousands recruited. But God said, you've got too many men. Send everyone home who is afraid. Gideon does so, but God still thought Gideon had too many men. God wanted this to be recognized as his victory and not a win by the people themselves. So God told Gideon to take the remaining men in the army to a pool of water. And all those who drank, by kneeling down and using their hands to cup water up to their mouth, they were sent home. Those who lapped up the water like dogs, that would be Gideon's army. And the 300 lappers, so it was. And they roundly defeated the Midianites. 
In reading about Gideon, our understanding of what constitutes a mighty man becomes more nuanced still. In particular, we learn that an actual mighty man might betray all of our expectations about what a mighty man is supposed to look like. Gideon was clear in his own mind that he was no mighty man, and he indicates that anybody that knew him and his clan would confirm Gideon's lack of mightiness. But God determines who he will make mighty, regardless of our assumptions about what constitutes the mighty. And this idea that a mighty man might surprise us is perhaps nowhere better illustrated than in Joshua 5, just before the Battle of Jericho. Joshua meets a mighty man here. Well, I don't know if he's a man or not. He's not the angel of the Lord who typically shows up in situations like this. Instead, he looks like a man and he's holding a drawn sword, but he describes himself as the commander of the Lord's army. So for our purposes, I'm considering him a mighty man. Okay, now now Joshua is already very skittish. He's in the land of enemies. Some of them are giants. And though Joshua trusts God, he feels just entirely overwhelmed. And he seems pretty scared when he meets this commander. His first question, are you for us or for our enemy? The commander replies he's for neither, but he continues, as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua falls face down to the ground in reverence and asks him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And I can only imagine the relief Joshua felt when he realized this guy, this mighty man, was there to help. In my mind's eye, I've always imagined this commander being built like you know, somebody like Captain America, and, and probably that sword was flaming, maybe even a lightsaber right out of Star Wars. This must have been one bad dude. But that's basically where chapter 5 ends, with the arrival of the proverbial Calvary in the form of this mighty man. When chapter 6 opens... Though we read the Lord is, is talking to Joshua about how to defeat the heavily fortified city of Jericho. And I don't know if the Lord is talking directly to Joshua or through the commander, but the commander has little role in the battle to come. In fact, none. Joshua, no doubt, must have thought that the commander was going to play the biggest role. He was going to burst down the gates. He was going to charge through. He was going to destroy the inhabitants of the city. No, actually, God had other plans. March around the city for several days, he tells Joshua, and play trumpets. Shout. I don't know what Joshua must have thought about that strategy, but I know what I would have thought. Marching and playing music? Really? What about this heavily armed commander over here? Nope. Marching and trumpets. Joshua was a man of deep faith, and he marched, and he blew the trumpets, and he shouted for seven days. And Jericho fell. God is full of surprises when he constitutes the mighty man, and sometimes he uses him in the most surprising of ways. But it's the mighty men of King David, and particularly the three, which sharpen our understanding of mighty men generally. Now, David himself is identified as a mighty man in 1 Samuel 16, 18 by a servant of King Saul. It's perhaps because of that that King Saul's jealousy turns into rage when he hears that David has been anointed by God as the next king. Saul, as you'll remember, tries to kill David. David flees into the wilderness. We read in the first few verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2 that men begin to come to David, men who would eventually be his mighty men. But that's yet to come. When we first begin to meet them in chapter 22, they are described in this way. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. 
they were distressed or in debt or discontented, hardly the making of mighty men, at least as we too often conceive of them. But they whipped themselves into an extraordinary band of soldiers. They were David's guardians, his companions, very skillful warriors. And after he became king, these men became David's military elite. They became his military leaders. They became his mighty men, or in Hebrew, the Gaborim. There's some debate about whether there were 30 or maybe 37 of them, and you can read more of them and their deeds in 2 Samuel 23 and in 1 Chronicles chapters 11 and 12. In 2 Samuel 23, at the end of the list of the Gaborim, there is a particularly tragic reference. We see listed there in verse 39 a name that will become prominent in the later life of David, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who David would take as his own and to cover up his sin, eventually have Uriah killed. And it reminds us that being a mighty man does not guarantee you a life free of pain and suffering. You can be mighty and still fall prey to the sinfulness of man. And in addition to the 30 men, David has the three that were the elite of the elite mighty men. We just heard about them in, in the uh, reading from 2 Samuel 23. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of uh, Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephim. At that time, David was in the stronghold in the uh, Philistine garrison, was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the uh, Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David not, would not drink it. Now, the writer here drives me just a little bit crazy because he seems to skip over all the good stuff, all the excitement and the action. But that's probably a signal to us as readers of this text that the battle to get the water probably isn't the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story is probably the last few lines. But he, that's David, refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this. Is, not the, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And I think these verses illustrate to us that this is the, a portrait of David at his most desperate moment. This is probably not about David being literally thirsty. You know, David and his men, they knew this land. Um, uh, they would have known where all the springs of water were. I feel certain they could have found water if they needed that. But remember that the uh, Philistines have their garrison now at David's hometown in Bethlehem. David's in a cave, and he's probably feeling like he's betrayed his hometown, that he's an utter weakling, and his defeat is absolutely inevitable. One writer notes that David's request is really a sigh or a crying out to God. What happened to everything you promised me? Why do I have to suffer like this? Why did you do this to me? Why aren't you with me? And I think three mighty men overheard this cry. And they probably weren't trying to prove their might by being reckless, charging into the Philistine camp, or, or trying to prove their worth or their bravery. Instead, I think they were, may very well have been trying to show David that God was still with him. They bet their lives on the promise of God. And God did not disappoint, uh, did not disappoint 
So when they returned with the water, David turns it into an offering of thanks, into an act of worship, into a confirmation that he knew God was with him. And so we learn from these three that while might may be the external experience of those who encounter the mighty men, their motivation may very well be total surrender. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. But then the Bible goes kind of quiet on the subject. We don't find a lot of other references to mighty men as mighty men elsewhere in the Bible. Or maybe we do. In the Gospels, we encounter literal and implicit references to a man of might once more. In Luke 24, 19, for example, several disciples are discussing the events of Jesus' alleged resurrection as they're on the road to Emmaus. And that, though they don't recognize him as Jesus, the resurrected Son of God asks them what they're talking about. Jesus of Nazareth, they say, he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. Matthew suggests the mightiness of Jesus, too, in, in chapter 7, verse 29, when he notes that the crowds who had heard the teaching of Jesus were astonished because he taught as one who had authority and not as their scribe. Luke 2 explicitly commented on the ways in which crowds surrounding Jesus after he healed a boy with an unclean spirit remarked that Jesus displayed the mighty power of God. And yet, and yet, Jesus had to keep asking people, who do you say I am? In Matthew 16 and verse 13, we read the following passage. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good answer, Peter, right? Wrong. Because five verses later, five verses later, Jesus is telling his disciples, that he has to go to Jerusalem, he will suffer many things, he will be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter's response, that will never happen to you, Lord. Jesus' response to that, get behind me, Satan. What did Peter miss? I think he had a picture of a mighty man that was roughly the same picture that we have of mighty men. Our heroes aren't going to die. They're not going to be hurt. Not really. We know how the movie's supposed to end. The Messiah? Well, that's going to be a warrior. That's going to be a mighty man. Is Jesus mighty? Yeah, indeed. But people then, even the disciples, had no understanding of what it means to be a mighty man than we do today. Let's go back to that moment on the road to Emmaus. Luke tells us when Jesus met his disciples on the road, he basically says, you know, it's interesting. You've read the Holy Word for years and years and years, and you've read it over and over again, Yet you're confounded, you're amazed that the anointed deliverer of Israel, me, would die and be raised from the dead. Who do you say I am? The disciples forget somewhere along the line that all kings point to the king. All prophets point to the prophet. All teachers point to the teacher. And all mighty men point to the mighty man. They were all pointing to Jesus. We just weren't paying attention. He was the literal Son of God. He was the one mighty man who could not succumb to hubris because he was God. And like Gideon and the commander of the army of the Lord in Joshua's encounter with Jericho, 
Jesus was a mighty man that crushed conventions, refusing to be the type of mighty man we wanted him to be instead of who he had to be. Remember what he told his disciples and us in his revolutionary Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 5, 3, 11, we read this incredible passage from the mightiest of men that ever was and ever will be. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Was anybody paying attention to Jesus when he said this? And how did people forget that just like David's mighty men, being mighty does not exempt you from suffering and the ultimate surrender, death. And just like David's three, how did people forget that in the midst of all of this, Jesus, the mighty man, was confirming that God is with us. We are utterly confused by who we think of as a mighty man or a mighty woman. We don't have to be. All the mighty men of the Bible point us to the mighty man. And in doing so, they warn us that the mighty man may not be exactly what we imagine when we conjure up images of mighty men. And Jesus confirms that in his words and actions. None of us can be the mighty man. But rather than trying to be a Superman or a Wonder Woman or a Lone Ranger, maybe it's time to look back again to what we have been taught about being a mighty man from the most important of the mighty man. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Someone may have decided this morning that they want an opportunity to respond to this message or the music we've been singing or the prayers that have been prayed or the scripture that was read. If that's you, you're invited to come to the front or someone will be here to meet you. We invite you to come as we stand and sing together.